Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. Uh, today you'll notice uh, something a little bit different. I'm actually um, away from my usual recording equipment, which frankly I'm not really that happy with anyway. I noticed the last couple of recordings there are a few skips in there that that uh, should have been there. But anyway, I'm recording this from my Android pad, and I'm actually uh, located... Uh, on some uh, rural property that we have. So I'm kind of out and away. So forgive any coughing or or if the sound quality isn't quite up to par. Uh, this is essentially a live style broadcast. I mean, it's it's uh, there's not there's going to be very little, if any editing done. So anyway, let me uh, get right into it. This is episode 115 of Old School Guns. And uh, we have no sponsors. We're not beholding to anybody. Uh, companies we like, we mention occasionally. Uh, Cavalry Ammunition does a great job, run by somebody I know. So it's it's reliable. It's good stuff. And it's, you know, given the prices these days, which we'll talk about uh, in a bit, uh, it's really good value. So if you need something, he can, he can hook you up, especially... Some of the harder to find calibers, like seven millimeter Mauser, three hundred three British, a few other things. So um, yeah, thirty eight short Colt. You know who knew? Who knew that you could actually buy that off the shelf from somewhere? Uh, you know Brownells always does a great job. I really like the way they support the Second Amendment. Same thing with Midway USA. Um, you know, occasionally I buy things from Midway USA because they're geographically close to me and it gets to my place within a day or so. And uh, what I like about it is that over the years, they've given $20 million via their Roundup program, which you buy something for $9.99, they round it up a penny and give that extra penny to the NRA. And um, of course, you know, you authorize them to do that. But, you know, sometimes I've, I've given four or five bucks, you know, something costs 58 bucks. I'll give them the two to make 60 or if something is 135 bucks. I'll give them five to make 140. And over the years, from all their customers, that's generated over 20 million dollars. That is really awesome. Uh, getting into a little bit of stuff that is uh, political. Don't want to spend too much time on it, but. You know, there are a couple of uh, podcasts I listen to, and one of the big theories is, well, you know, AOC, this Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who used to just go by Sandy Cortez, and was was actually acted like a normal person at one time, I guess. But, you know, that she doesn't really have any power. And, you know, she's just kind of the, the far-left progressive version of this Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's basically her mirror image on the far right and she really doesn't have any power she's just this mirror image doesn't really have any power but you know she gets by her provocative statements she gets people all stirred up don't believe that for a new york minute do not believe that for a new york minute she's just proven this week with this budget wrangling um and it's it's a question of are they going to waste 1.5 1.5 trillion dollars or 4.5 trillion dollars how much money are the democrats going to waste that's what the argument really boils down to and ocasio cortez and her other far left members I, I guess it's the members of the squad and and probably some of their allies hey they've stopped this up there is a case of constipation 
in the Democratic Party where they're not going to get this done. And Biden, Chris Christie said Biden is dead on arrival. And he's right. She has just effectively killed his presidency. And she has more power in the Congress than Joe Manchin does. And you think about that and you think about who she is, what her experience is, and how stupid she really is. That is a very frightening prospect. But she and a few of her cohorts have jammed it up. Because Pelosi doesn't have enough votes to get this stuff through without everybody voting for it. So really, any constituency that's got three or four or five members at the most can jam up Pelosi. They can jam her up. And it's just as effective as if they had 50 votes. Same way, kind of working in the Senate, you know, Manchin, any Democratic senator can stop anything. All they got to do is say, I won't vote for it. That's what Manchin and Cinema basically did. We're not voting for the $3.5 trillion, you know, giveaway, you know, pork barrel spending. So it's dead. It won't go anywhere. Okay, they got 48 votes. That's it. Takes 50 plus Harris as a tiebreaker. And, you know, we won't even talk about what a mess Harris is. What a, what a disaster. It's, you know, you don't expect very much from a vice president. And she has lived up to those low expectations. You cannot expect anything from her. So we actually have two vice presidents. We have Biden, who's an idiot. And now we have Harris, who's an even bigger idiot. So we'll see. Uh, this goes into this goes into Biden. You know, the fact of the matter is, usually a president has enough incumbent power that he could go to people like Ocasio-Cortez and say, hey, look, this is what I want you to do. If you want to stay on my good side, this is what I want you to do. And they heed that. They, for the most part, they heed that. Because if your party has the presidency, you do not want to be on that president's bad side. And there's several people who learned that under Donald Trump, and there's several more who are about to learn that. That guy Kinziger is dead on arrival, and Cheney is dead on arrival. Those two idiots did not stay on their president's good side. In fact, they went out of their way to provoke him, and then when he reacts and, and uh, strikes back, they, they get all upset and act like they're these great you know defenders of democracy when they're just both political scuts. Cheney is nothing more than a Democrat. Same thing with Kinziger. They're, they're nothing more than Democrats. So, you know, the sooner they're gone, the better, and neither of them are going to survive a, a re-election in 2022. That's just a plain fact. So we have Biden, who is a weak president because he can't even bring his party in line. He's a serial bungler, and, and you could go back. Uh, the border, COVID, certainly Afghanistan, the economy. Every decision he makes seems to be wrong. He is a serial bungler. He is to bungling what Ted Bundy was to killing a serial bungler. And, you know, we can't afford him. We, we just cannot afford him. He is trying to, he's trying to tweak and dismantle the country in many ways. And just for short-term political gain, he's, he's spending us into, wants to spend us into oblivion and wants to basically open borders. It's all a fiasco. The Biden presidency is a joke. The Biden presidency 
is the worst possible thing we could happen. He uh, he reminds me of Chance the Gardener in that Peter Sellers movie, Being There, where he's just this idiotic gardener who says these very, very, you know, just basically weird pronouncements on things that don't really have any meaning. And everybody reads into it what they want to hear, and they think that this guy's a genius. Same thing with Biden. Biden has never said anything that was profoundly intelligent or or put forth any kind of profoundly usable or profoundly, you know, good policy decisions. All he's ever done is just kind of go up there. He kind of, you know, gives you a sound bite and wanders away. And you know, I guess when his depends get full, he has to he has to wander off the stage and have a, you know, who knows what all that looks like. But you know, he's he's there. He's Chance the Gardener. He's he's just, and you can tell just by looking at him. The guy's not there. You can also tell, you can also tell that the decline in the last six months has been precipitous. I mean, at least six months ago, he'd try to speak and do a few things. Now he's just, he's a disaster. And that's why all the proxies are coming out and talking for him. No sitting president, in my memory, would ever have tolerated what happened on Capitol Hill when the Three Stooges, Mo Miley, Larry Austin, and Curly McKenzie, otherwise known as General Mark Milley, uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and U.S. CENTCOM Commander, Commander General, whatever his first name is, McKenzie. Instead, they're not what their titles are. They're the Three Stooges. And, you know, it's, it's, it's pathetic. But they threw Biden under the bus. They said, yeah, we told him. We told him to keep the residual force of, you know, Twenty-five to thirty-five hundred people in there conduct counterterror operations. Keep supporting the Afghan army, and we can hold out indefinitely. They said that, and that directly contradicted Biden. That never would have been tolerated in any other administration. That never would have been. I remember in the Gulf War, in which I participated, um, there was some dust up about. Um, you know, who wanted to go to Baghdad, Schwarzkopf, the, the, the reporting was Schwarzkopf wanted to go, but, but, uh, Bush told him no, et cetera, et cetera. And as it turned out, um, Schwarzkopf got on and said, no, the president was right. That's it. We were not in disagreement, blah, blah, blah. That's whether he was or not, doesn't matter, but that's what you do to a boss. You, you line up behind the boss and you, you, uh, basically, you know, exhibit some loyalty, which uh, those the Three Stooges didn't do. They're clearly... The only reason why getting rid of them won't matter is because there's probably 50 guys behind them, you know, and that's been said before. So, anyway, Biden the bungler. And that, of course, leads us to the crisis in military leadership when you have a battalion commander in the United States Marine Corps now, granted, you can you can say, well, getting on social media and acting and asking for accountability from senior leaders is probably not the right thing to do. But he did it, and he was thrown in jail for it, and it took an extraordinary effort to get him released. 
thrown in jail because he made a YouTube video. A YouTube video that embarrassed the military leadership. Not nearly as badly as they embarrassed the commander-in-chief. <laughs> so there you go. What kind of hypocrites are these? What kind of people are these? I, I think we need almost a 1930s Soviet uh, purge and get these guys out. Maybe everybody above the rank of colonel needs to immediately retire. And then we need to strongly evaluate who we put in charge of organizations. I mean, it's that bad. It is that bad. Um, David Hackworth, who was uh, kind of this outside soldier, he'd been a colonel in the Army and he had a long career. You can look him up to, to read his resume. But he was a guy who'd been in battle and, and you know, he kind of got weird towards the end of his career. But then he came back about 10 years later. He went and lived in Australia. said, I want nothing to do with the, the military, United States or anything. Then he came back and became a military affairs correspondent or commentator, I guess would be a better word. And he used to talk about these guys as the perfumed princes, uh, guys who, who were acting like they're rock stars. And I mean, generals act like rock stars. A lot of them, they fly around in what are notionally private jets because the Air Force provides them these little C-12, you know, jets that they can fly around on. Um, they get treated like, like, you know, rock star royalty when they go places. The best quarters, the best hotels, the best this, the best that. Um, and, you know, that's, that is what it is. But when your troops are out training and living in mud, um, that's not the way to, to behave. It's just not the way to behave. Um, and that, but that's sadly the way it is. Now, these guys will say, well, when I was... You know, coming up, I did my, I did this school and that school and, you know, it was tough here and tough there and all that. That, that doesn't really matter. It's the, the leadership you exhibit when you're on top that matters. And uh, they're not exhibiting it. We have this protected class of people who've climbed the ranks and um, they're really not a very good bunch of people. And we, they have let the nation down. You know, it's kind of a military mantra. And there are guys who, I've known guys who've even gotten it tattooed on their, their arms. Uh, death before dishonor. And Afghanistan was dishonor. And that's why all the veterans, that's why a lot of people are seriously pissed off. Leaving Afghanistan, it, it's, not a, it's not a question of leaving it. It's how you do things. And you never, you never get anywhere when you act dishonorably. And... These generals, the Secretary of Defense, have dishonored the nation. They've dishonored the nation, and uh, I hope that they, I hope that they have to suffer the consequences of that. So far, it looks like they're just going to get away clean. Okay, let me start talking about some gun stuff because that's the best part of this, anyway. Uh, I am continuing to experiment with powder coating, and it's getting better. I got the Eastwood powder coat. I'll be quite blunt with you. It, it doesn't work out as well as it does on these YouTube videos. Um, I, I am not going to invest a lot more time or effort into this if I can't get it, if I can't get it right. Uh, I've got one or two more methods I'm going to try. Then after that, I'm, I'm out of the pool. Um, if my bullets look funky because they're... The, the problem is... 
getting a light even coat on the bullet. Now you can get a heavy even coat, but there that's pretty goofy. And um, I did not know this until I did further research. But the Harbor Freight powder coat, the Harbor Freight powder coat, is is trash and it doesn't work. So don't waste your time on that. The Eastwood stuff is expensive, and it works better, but it's still not working up to my expectations. So. That's that's all I can tell you with that. So um, there, but there are people on YouTube. That, I mean, they do it while they're filming, and uh, they're having a lot better luck than I am. But hey, we're gonna go with it. We're gonna we're gonna give it a few more tries before I throw in the towel. I will have exhausted um, what I think is every mean at, at a certain point. If it looks like it's just going to become a more work than it's worth, then you just you just say forget it. You just you know, it's so easy to use Lee Alex or Alox, however you want to pronounce it. Um, it's so easy to use that on bullets. You just you just basically throw them in a container and squirt that stuff in and tumble it for three or four minutes in your hands. You know, you just tumble the container around and those bullets are coated. And uh, I've used that before. They work fine, especially low velocity loads. They work fine. I was hoping powder coating could help. Uh, with some of the higher velocity stuff. But we'll see. Uh, going back to bullet casting. Uh, I really can't say enough good things about Lee Molds. I really can't. Um, they have the best molds for the price. And their prices are about a third of everybody else's. Because they use aluminum. And there are a couple of other companies that use aluminum also. They kind of seem the light. It's a little easier to uh, manufacture and machine. But... Uh, they've, they've got good bullet designs, not everything I would like, but they have good bullet designs, so I can't really fault them, can't really say anything. Uh, they're all very usable, they're all very good. Um, so I'm really a big fan of uh, Lee Lee stuff. I mean, they're, they're, powder, fur, they're, uh, they're powder furnaces, <sighs> they're lead melting furnaces, lead melting furnaces are, um, are really excellent, and... Uh, I've had three of them in the last several decades, and two of them are still going. Two, two of them are still going. One is actually still brand new in the box. I bought it about 15 years ago, and I'm just going to use it for my pure lead um, that I want to you know, use for black powder type guns. And the other I use for my alloy that I use for my uh, smokeless powder center fires. So... But can't say enough about I uh, can't say enough good things about Lee molds. Oh, that brings us up to you know there's there's bore dimensions and you can slug bores. My, my problem with slugging a bore is it depends on the rifling and everything and and then you put the calipers on it and are you getting a true reading? I, I suppose I suppose. Um, and, and then there are, you know, differences in caliber and differences in manufacturer. Um, take a look at 9mm Luger, 38 Super, 38 Smith & Wesson. And you could throw 38 Special in there also. Uh, 9mm Luger is supposed to be a 354, and you can use a 355 lead bullet in it. 
38 super is supposed to be 356, and you can use a 357 bullet. And 38 Smith and Wesson is supposed to be 361, and that's kind of the bullet you need. Uh, 361 or 362, and 38 specialist 357, so you need to use a 358 bullet. In a perfect world, that would all work out, and that would all be correct, and that would all be no problem. But there's been so many manufacturers, and there's there's been 9mm guns made under very, very trying wartime circumstances. Uh, there have been a lot of guns that have been shot extensively, and they're Obviously, their bore diameter is going to be a little bit larger. Um, and, you know, there's just there's a difference between a super tight match barrel and maybe something that just got cranked off the assembly line in the Philippines. So you never know. You just never know. Um, a lot of times you have to experiment and see what gives you the best accuracy. Um, that's kind of what I do. I, I'm, I'm more of a, well, I know this bullet matches this gun spec-wise, will the bullet I make match the gun I have and produce good accuracy? Will it be undersized? Usually if it's oversized, it's it's fine, a little fine. Um, the, the problem is you might get some leading. So, um, you know, but I've, I've said, I've kind of stuck with the published stats and I've been fine. I also question whether the 38 Smith & Wesson Victory models actually have a 361 bore um i tend to believe they probably ship those with 358 359 bores um that's just what i tend to believe i would probably uh i'll probably try to slug my my victory model 38 smith and wesson and see if it's actually any different from the 38 special victory model smith and wesson that i have um i just see un under the under the urgency of war, I just don't know that they made that change. And so I also know that when 38 Smith & Wesson revolvers came in in the 50s and early 60s, um, that basically people would just run a chamber reamer in it, ream it to 38 Special, knowing that the uh, back end of the cartridge would be, the back end of the chamber would be oversized because it was made to accommodate the slightly larger Smith & Wesson, 38 Smith & Wesson cartridge. But they seem to fire fine, and uh, I've never seen an accuracy test of it, but that would have a 358 bullet going down what specification-wise should be a 361 bore. So we'll see. Um, I'm going to play with that a little bit. That's a good wintertime project, so I'm going to kind of play with that a little bit and see what, uh, see what else is happening. Okay, um... I just want to talk about, uh, I'm in the throes of planning another themed shoot. I like doing themed shoots, and my friend of the podcast is a partner in crime in these things and has been for many, many years. You know, the, the beautiful part about we started doing these shoots, and he and I had met years ago at a um, black powder shoot out at the James Farm, which is the birthplace of the outlaw Jesse and my relative, Jesse James. Uh, we... We met there, and you know, we we I never saw him again at one of those events. And then a couple of years later, um, a real we bumped into each other at a gun club where we're both members. And you know, it's been a great friendship ever since. I mean, um, one of the most intelligent people that I've ever met. So 
and and a and a diehard gun guy and a guy with what I consider to be excellent taste in firearms and and in fact um, we own lots of duplicates of things because we both we both like it the latest being um, he just bought a vintage uh, Sig P210 which is you know absolutely beautiful gun absolutely beautiful gun and so uh, it reflects my taste for the Sig P210 target that uh, I bought last year so. So we have very similar tastes, but one of the things we like are themed shoots. Our latest one, and in the winter we do Red Dawn, Kansas, which is, of course, basically uh, a Warsaw Pact themed, you know, think Cold War, literally, uh, Cold War stuff. So most of us use kind of, you know, Soviet, Russian weapons and, and clothing. Uh, we also have a resistance class for people who want to be Wolverines. And that's a fun, that's a fun match. It's fun putting these together. The limitation I have is we don't do stages like we do in cowboy action or you see on the in the, the YouTube videos of two gun matches. And that's just simply for time. I mean, just the time it requires to and the reset time to do that, the scoring. So we kind of do square range stuff, but we throw enough of a flare into it with, with the targets and other things that uh, good time is had by all. Plus, it's not so complex that new shooters are scared away and say, well, how am I going to remember to, you know, move from this square to that square and engage this target and engage that target and, you know, keep all the guns safe. It's, it's, it's a lot less of a threatening environment. So we like that. The latest one we're doing, we, we do Red Dawn in, um, in the winter. We do military rifle themed shoots during the summer, during the spring and summer. And during the fall, we're going to do one uh, for the Wild Geese. The think of the 1978 mercenary movie. Um, you know, private military force raised to go rescue an imprisoned African leader who, you know, is marked for assassination and try to restore him back to his rightful place. And that's just really the background. The um, the interesting part of that is we're we're just going to use. 70s and 80s military gear give us a chance to shoot FNFALs or you know the AKs or the uh, retro model AR15s or a few other things like M1 carbines and and uh, um, you know other things like M1 Garand you could shoot an M14 any of that cold war stuff any of that cold war stuff kind of fits in and obviously our range does not allow the use of submachine guns on any level so we are shooting pistol caliber carbines because a lot of people have the semi-automatic versions of what would notionally um, be kind of a, a Cold War era submachine gun. You know, there's there's the semi-automatic Thompsons. There's there's all kinds of different things that, that have been put out over the years. So it's a chance to use those. And even some of the ones that have been sold as pistols can be fired with a brace or a sling. You know, the PPSH or the uh, MP40s. Those are all, they're, they're all very cool. And so this is a chance to use that stuff. And we've, we've actually, at least in planning, we're stretching to allow the PC, the Ruger PC carbines in, you know, a few other pistol caliber carbines that kind of have a more traditional look and flair. Um, God, what were those old ones? The Marlin, Marlin had those, uh, 
camp carbines too that we, we'd probably allow those too. those were back from that that era Th those would be fine you know that kind of stuff what we want to stay away from is the newer high-speed stuff optical sights all the rest of it the gamer gear needs to go away this is about guns this is creating an event for the older guns in an older style guns in as issued condition and realizing that there are always some problems with that you know, a lot of the PTR-91s, Galils, and a few other things have been sold, and they ha actually have an integral Picatinny rail on top. Well, we don't see that as being a problem as long as the original style sights are used. You know, hey, it's, okay, it's got a rail on there, but you don't have anything on it. So it's it's not a problem, you know. So the uh, the new thing we're going to add is a... Um, of a female division, should they choose to participate in it, that's 22 long rifle only. So they can use, you know, a 22 long rifle kind of gun. And in the PCC category, we're, lever guns are also legal. So if somebody's got a, you want to shoot your 4440 Winchester, have at it. Even if you want to shoot your 3030 with, you know, lead bullets, because I wouldn't use factory ammo for this, you know, that'll be fine too, because that's about the same power power go um yeah that's going to be that's going to be very interesting and handguns are going to be essentially pre-1985 handguns no none of the strike no leave the glocks and the smith and wesson mnps and all the rest of that at home and um you know th this will be for older guns your cz 75 cz 85 cz you know 82 um 1911s obviously p35 browning high powers obviously all those guns and we're kind of saying fixed sight only uh because we want to kind of the duty guns even a beretta 92 is fine with with the uh, uh duty sights certainly the walther p38 and the rest of them would be would be fine so anyway that's the uh that's the thrux of that that kind of deal and uh, of course we strongly encourage uniforms or or period style clothing we don't require it for this match we're going to require though that you do have boots you do have some sort of of headgear that's appropriate and it could be anything you could wear a anything from a pith helmet to a slouch hat doesn't matter and if you're wearing a military uniform any kind of uniform hat or helmet doesn't matter and uh with that is going to be a lot of fun and so we require the only real requirement is to have boots and have something that looks like period style civilian or military clothing and um and also you have to carry your ammunition all your ammunition with you so if you've got an lbe that's fine if you've got a small rucksack that's fine if you've got even a shoulder bag that's fine but carry all your ammo and your because we're going to be going back and forth between two ranges um carry your snacks and your water with you so yeah, that'll be fun. That'll that'll be very much fun. So themed shoots, I I really enjoy them. That's that's really part of shooting that I enjoy the most. Okay. Uh, just real quick, yeah, gun content is slowing down on the internet. I don't know what's really causing that. I, um, I think you know, hey, ARs have been done forever. Um, you know, I I think. What you see in in-range TV is kind of this, you know, they're kind of off on a tangent now. Uh, they've done the one, what would Stoner do? They've gone off on a tangent 
or I should say one, because it seems like they've kind of split up the, <laughs> the two guys that were on there, each doing their own thing. Uh, so a lot of that has slowed down. And I think that's, you know, it just shows how cyclic some of this stuff can be. And it also shows that there would probably be more if YouTube did not have the restrictions it has. So, um, you know, until another viable, actually freedom-loving platform is there. Um, and, and they've tried to start a few, but they just don't get any viewership. Everybody just gravitates toward YouTube. Until people break their YouTube habit, I don't know that we're going to see a whole lot. Awesome, great news I have on the family front. My niece just got her first firearm. And uh, she's grown. I mean, she's grown and she's working. And uh, um, after college, she is, she, three years ago, without owning any guns, she became a life member of the NRA, which is a great thing. And she also um, goes to, like, the Ducks Unlimited dinners and friends of the NRA. Well, she she bid on a a package where they had a Smith & Wesson shield and some lessons that went with it. It was one of those kind of uh, silent bid auctions. And she had the winning bid. So she now has a shield and now she has some concealed carry lessons that go with it, which will be just great. So, um, you know, best of luck to her. She is following in some long tradition. As a matter of fact, I'm just packaging up. I still, my father was an NRA life member, as I am. So I'm packaging up some of the uh, documents and, and name badges and, and things that, that uh, were his. And I'm going to give it to my niece, who is his granddaughter. And she is, she is there. So that's outstanding. Okay, here is my favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers. And the first question is, what is the right size lead bullet for a 3220 rifle 311 or 314 uh the books will tell you usually 311 or 312 i have found the 314 shoots best in my winchester 73 so and i use spg lube and i use a black powder substitute so um that's what i have found works the best if it's a vintage gun, I would say probably the larger bullet is the better way to go. A new a new gun or, you know, the, I don't want to say reproduction, I hate that word, but a newer made Winchester Model 73 in that caliber would probably, I would try the 311 first and then go up from there. Okay, can you make 38 Smith & Wesson brass from 38 Special Brass? The answer is yes. Yes, you you can and cannot. Uh, the thirty eight Smith and Wesson is an older cartridge, and for some un, unbeknownst reason to me, the British basically adopted it after World War One as the thirty eight two hundred round, and it was the Smith and Wesson case with a two hundred grain bullet, which went out of the. And we'll talk about this later. I got a question for this. The the wonderful Enfield and and Webley revolver at like six hundred and fifty feet per second. I mean, it's it's a it is slow. It is very slow. Uh, why they adopted that when the thirty eight special was available is absolutely 
a mystery to me. It, the, the only reason I can think of is they were going to stay with the Enfield revolver and it, maybe the cylinder was too short. But Oh, anyway, so that was a disaster. But the 38 Smith & Wesson is thicker at the base of the cartridge. It kind of tapers, so it's, they're not interchangeable. It's not just a shorter version of the 38 Special, the way the 38 Long Colt and Short Colt are. So you, you could get away with shooting 38 Short Colt in a 38 Smith & Wesson, and you could, you could get a lathe, or even more crudely, a chop saw, um, and trim down 38 Special Brass. They will probably bulge. I guarantee they'll bulge. The life of the brass is probably going to be very, very short. Maybe, maybe two or three reloadings before they crack because they're bulging. <laughs> so, uh, what I would say is, you can't now. Normally, I wouldn't even. I would say no. Don't don't do it. Just buy the 38 Smith and Wesson brass. Except there's none to be had. Because in the ammo shortage, everything is going towards the common calibers and not the very uncommon calibers. So we are in one of these emergency situations where you do have to, um, you do have to, you know, make do as best you can. So I would say, yeah, for the short term, especially if you're only going to get one or two loadings out of it, you probably get two loadings out of it. I would, I would do that. I may actually experiment with it. And, of course, this all goes out the door when you're talking top break, 19th century revolvers. Um, don't do it. Do not do it. Uh, 20th century revolvers only. And I think the powder charge is usually like under two grains. It's not a powerful deal. So, um, yes, it can be done for the short term to keep those revolvers shooting, but... Uh, it will require trimming some brass significantly. You got to knock like a quarter of an inch off a 38 special case. So, you know that's that is what that is. But yes, it can be done, but it's not going to be the greatest thing in the world. Oh, so yeah. And that go leads us into our next question, which is going to have a short answer. I think we've been asked this before. Were Webley's or Enfield's the best war-slash-combat revolvers made? And the answer is, no, they were not. They were not even close. And I realize there are some gun writers who, who like English guns, like British guns, who will say, who will say that. They will say that. Um, but because they're top break and, you know, yes, if you... They eject all the empties at once. Kind of the thing, the excuse they use for the Smith & Wesson Schofields and, you know, the number three and all that. My, my fault is that's, that is all true. It does eject the empties exceptionally well, but that's the only thing it does exceptionally well. Um, the trigger mechanism on those is horrific. Even, horrific. Even in, um, even in single action mode, it's not very good. I mean, in double action mode is... You've got to be within almost contact distance to make that work. So they are not. Um, they are very cool. They are ugly in a very cool way. I like them. I've always liked them. I always think they're very cool. They're very historical. They're a lot of fun. They're great guns for all that. But if you're talking about the best combat revolvers ever made, I still go back Smith & Wesson, 
uh, model 1917, Smith and Wesson model 10, in its very, you know, in all of its, the K-frame Smith and Wesson in all of its military configurations. Uh, was a, and in 38 special was an outstanding revolver. Um, and that includes up even even the victory models are just great guns, great guns. After that, I go down to the Colts. I like the Colt 1917. It's a little big. I prefer the Smith and Wessons, but the Colt 1917 is a great revolver. And I I'll be honest with you, I'd rather have a Colt 1890, or I've got a Colt. What is it? Colt 1901. You know, kind of the frail, very hard um, to deal with cold, you know. I'd rather have that than a Webley, to be blunt. I think that was a better design. Uh, the Webley is probably more durable, so I'll, I'll give it that. But when it comes to shooting, I'd rather have the, uh, I'd rather have a 38 long Colt than a Webley 38-200. So there you go. The uh, best combat revolvers. I'm, and I'm talking military usage. You, you could say, well, the Python was much better. Yes, it is. Or the Model 29, Smith & Wesson. Yes, it was. We're talking about the ones that were like used by the U.S. military, British military. And the military revolver went away in 1945, except for the ones they had in stocks. And, you know, they if you had a stockpile of them, yeah, they would still be used by military police and all that. But uh, those are the ones. Uh, I do like, I don't really consider them a military revolver, even though the military bought and used some. The um, Smith & Wesson Model 15 was used by the Air Force for a couple decades. And I know that some Rugers and things were used. But I'm talking about the main the main ones that were adopted in very, very large numbers that we would all see. Uh, that being said, I'd love to have an Air Force marked Model, fi Model 15. That'd be cool. I have a Model 15. It's just not Air Force marked. Okay, have you ever heard the saying, watch out for the man who owns one gun. He probably knows how to use it. Um, yes, I have heard that. And yes, it is complete hogwash. Complete, utter, BS hogwash. Um, I can tell you this right now. I've known probably, because people know me and they know I like guns, so there'll, there'll be people who, who very, very well-intentioned strike up a conversation and they'll go, oh, you you know about guns? And I go, oh, a little bit, you know. I just it's always kind of been a hobby. And they'll say, well, I've got a thirty-eight. Oh, really? What's the maker? Well, I'm not really sure. Sometimes they don't. They they'll, they'll have a thirty-eight revolver, usually something they inherited or something they bought secondhand or bought from a friend getting a divorce or some somehow they don't they don't do research. Go in and and say, I want a Colt Diamondback revolver you know it's not it's never that it's always there was some opportunity buy of a 38 revolver and it could be anything from a very nice top of the line revolver to something that was made you know anywhere with with crummy metal and and everything else it because they don't know they don't know it, it was just gun buy gun there it is and i've never found one of those guys who has taken it out and fired it more than once or twice I've never found anybody who owns one gun and goes out and fires it to the point where they're an excellent shot, or even a good shot. I've never seen it. Absolutely never seen it. There are guys who, who go out and are good marksmen and competitors who are not real gun collectors or gun enthusiasts, but they will usually own at least three or four guns. 
and and a lot of times they're trading them off like like you know it's, it's a tool to them so they they hey this is my sti 1911 that i shoot in competition well when they see something they like better they sell that one and get the get the other one there's no sentimentality attached um you know but they i've never seen one of those guys who just owns one gun they they usually own at least three two or three you know so the guy with one gun is just a myth that's that's out there the guy with one gun probably has a hard time loading it and can't hit much with it at all all right Ooh, how are your homemade revolver percussion caps working out well, I haven't been on them for a while. That's a wintertime project. I'm going to make a bunch more because in the spring I plan to do more black powder shooting. Um, this spring, I, I, I worked with them. I loved them, made them. Um, they turned out to be, you know, really good. And that kit from 22 Reloader is, is a nice thing to have. And um, to be very blunt, I've stocked up on some, you can still find black powder substitute. I've kind of stocked up on that. I can make my own caps and I can cast my own lead balls. So I got the molds to do that. So that's part of bullet casting is, hey, all of a sudden I went from being um, totally dependent on a supply chain to I'm really pretty independent now. I can make a couple of thousand caps. I can cast the, the balls I need and I can shoot them in my cap and ball revolver. There you go. So, yeah, they're working out. They're great. Um, they're absolutely, they, they work very well. I, I don't think they're quite as powerful as the ones you buy because they use flash powder. And there's some other, there's some other um, compound they use in the other ones. But, hey, it works. So, with the, the, only, the only skip I had was I was using a, a brass frame cheap $100 I bought it used for a hundred dollars. It's it's a serviceable revolver, but it, it's kind of one of those. It, it's one of the fake Confederate revolvers, and uh, it's a Pieta. And I think it was made in the '60s too. I mean, it, it goes way back. It may have even been a kit. Who knows? But um, I had I did have one of those caps misfire, and this was you know when you get about three cylinders in, you start having problems. You need to clean the gun basically. But uh, I just put a regular cap on it because I had some regular caps with me and it fired. So I look, I'm like, wow. So I basically had 24 out of 25 go. And then I used one, one of my regular caps to one of my CCI caps for that. And it went, went well. So I'm like, hey, I'm good. You know, uh, that's 25 to 1. That's, that's all right. I can live with that. Uh, next question. Do you make your own gas checks? No, but I'm going to start because the price on those things are getting obscene. And the bullets I use gas checks in are really... I, I'm rather dubious on gas checks. Um, I don't know that they work the way people think they work. I know Elmer Keith didn't think much of them at all. He, he experimented with them. But I do have bullet molds that require that produce bullets that require gas checks. That's the only reason I'm going to do it. And if I can make them out of soda cans as opposed to the cool little copper ones, then fine. Because really with my cast bullet, especially my cast bullet handgun shooting, I'm not shooting at that far range. I'm not looking for Camp Perry gilt-edged accuracy. My most accurate loads, which, which can produce really outstanding accuracy, don't require gas checks because it's 
uh, 200 grain, 45 caliber semi wad cutters, 148 grain, 38 caliber wad cutters. And basically those bullets don't require gas checks. I, I really only use them on some rifle rounds. And uh, I've got a couple of pistol a couple of pistol molds that require them, but um, other than that, I don't really need them, so I'm not going to use them. Well, I know this is a little short. We're here at uh, 48 minutes, but that is really it for this edition of Old School Guns. The podcast tells you like it is. If you have any questions or comments, please go ahead and leave them in the comment section on Podbean, or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. That is kbmakel at aol.com. And until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.